Welcome to TRC Talks, a podcast by The Reynolds Company, an authorized Rockwell distributor. This show features conversations with the automation specialists from The Reynolds Company, explaining and exploring the evolving landscape of products, services, and solutions for industrial controls and automation. Welcome back to TRC Talks, the podcast from The Reynolds Company an authorized Rockwell Automation Distributor. I am Wayne Welk, your host for this episode. Today, we've come to our final industrial networking topic in this series, and Joe Belaski and Mike Masterson return to the podcast for a discussion on industrial networking resiliency. After covering the various layers and elements of an industrial Ethernet network, today we'll look at ways to build a more resilient network to provide better uptime results on your plant floor. Be sure to check the show notes for any useful links about the topics we will discuss in this episode. Now, let's welcome Joe and Mike back to the podcast. So we welcome back Joe Belaski and Mike Masterson. Guys, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. And we've reached our final episode today of our industrial networking series. And up to this point, we've really built up from the plant floor all the way up to the IDMZ, all the layers on the Purdue model throughout the CPWE architectures. And we thought our last discussion would cover resiliency and the importance of uptime, especially in the industrial control space. Our our main goal here is to keep the network up as as much as possible, especially if we're using this as a control network. It's very important to keep the process up. So designing the networks to be able to heal themselves in case of an error is very important. But there's other considerations we need to take in place when we decide how we're going to approach it. Certain things like um, the the location of devices that we're trying to put on the network, the uh, resiliency performance, type of media we're using, tolerance to uh, data latency, and and uh, what we want to do in the future. The, the, those are sort, some of the things, the requirements we take when we try to figure out how we want to design our resilient network. I think one of the uh, biggest things when it comes to resilient networks and industrial networks is, you know, we, we look at the equipment. Now, most everybody's familiar with the uh, your Cisco routers and things like that, the little belt and boxes that you have at your house. And those things are phenomenal for doing home networks. But, you know, about once a week, every now and then, sometimes you have to go reboot them and things like that. And industrial equipment doesn't have that same level of maintenance requirement. You just re- weekly reboot things and things like that. That's one of the benefits of the industrial equipment is it allows us to do continuous network and not have any interruption from the hardware itself. Then we take it to the next level of uptime we want to be able to talk on everything. We want to be able to talk to everything continuously. So having the good industrial equipment is a, a baseline for all of the industrial resilient networks. And then to be able to go architect with the different protocols and different things like that and network architectures to be able to have your uptime. So if something does fail, what is the recover? How long does it take to recover from it? Right. And any interruption in the process can be, you know, a 
huge loss of productivity on the plant floor or possibly in certain batch applications, your loss of product or something. That's one of the common things we hear about, especially, you know, on the IT side of things, right? If, if you have a little bit of interruption on your IT network, you know, so you lose your email for a few minutes, right? No one's going to really complain that loudly. But if you interrupt your plant floor operations, then that's that's lost money and lost productivity. Yeah, it's a difference between inconvenience and scrapped product. Exactly. So what are some of the most common resilient network architectures we would see on a, on the plant floor? On the plant floor, a lot of ring environments because they tend to cater themselves to what we need on the plant floor. They're simple. It gives you media redundancy. The management of them or setting them up is generally pretty easy. And it, it, some of the physical attributes are taking out of the equation. Like we don't have to do home runs back to the switch. We, we can do a, um, just a, a really cost effective um, media design when we use a ring. Also, the, I guess the other one we see or we hear about uh, quite often is the redundant star network. But th- th- that does have some limitations um, and it does require a lot of hardware. Yeah, the redundant star one is that you see it a little bit more in some of the uh, more uptime required network applications. The ring is definitely, I think, one of the most popular. Right, it's an easy installation, but it does only protect you against a single point of failure, right, in a, in a Ex- ring. Exactly. But that also brings in the mind, uh, when you do a redundant star, one thing you have to have is dual Ethernet ports in the devices you're hooking up. Quite often, we don't have that luxury in, in some of our systems, like some of our ISO systems wouldn't support it. So a ring gives us a very cost-effective way of, of implementing uptime. That's an interesting point, but you, you might have two runs from like the the upstream switch to the to the access switch, you know, in the in that area or cell. But then you might only have one link to the industrial control device, like the PLC or the remote IO drop, right? Exactly, where we're using some sort of port aggregation from the access switch, the distribution switch. We're more concerned with a um, media fault on the ring. Again, it, it's. It's a much simpler network to, to put in, and it's just a lot more cost-effective in the long run, and it's easier to troubleshoot, I would say. We sit here and talk about just hooking things up in a ring or perhaps a parallel, you know, redundant star type of topology, but there's actually protocols that are in play there, right, to, to actually enable the resiliency. You just can't create a, a ring, right, without having certain protocol to, to prevent against network storms. Exactly. And, and it's really important to f- pick the right protocol for your application. There are multiple ring protocols. Not everyone works for a control network. Typically in our rocket well environment, we like to use a device level ring, which is not a proprietary ring, but Rockwell did help develop it. It, it is part of the Open Device Vendors Association. So it is an open protocol and other people are designing to it. But it is a high-speed ring built specifically for the control network. Other things, there's, a, there's Rapid Spanning Tree, STP. Other switch manufacturers have their own proprietary ring networks also. Typically, the proprietary ring networks are, are, are designed specifically for specific applications. Like in the industrial world, if you're using a proprietary type algorithm, that is there for a specific reason. And DLR's case, it's for high-speed correction of uh, an issue with the uh, media. Yeah, that's one of the bi- biggest differences between the different 
uh, protocols when it comes to doing rings is that some of them are switch manufacturer specific. So you can't intermingle different manufacturers of devices. And then you also get some differences in the recovery time. If a link breaks versus, uh, you know, a wire gets cut someplace, how long does it take for the network to figure that out and correct itself and go into a linear type topology? And that's one of the benefits of, let's say, DLR, which is typically less than three milliseconds, which is very, very important on the plant floor network. Uh, some of the other methods of doing rings can take upwards of three seconds and longer to recover, which is, again, inconvenient, but doesn't necessarily, you know, would on the plant floor, that would lose you some uh, production, most likely. And what are some of the protocols used in the redundant star topology? Typically, we've got a couple of those built in from different switches. The Some of the most common ones are going to be flex links, either channel. Those are the ones that we seem to use the most. Uh, each one offers its own benefits versus the other one. And then we have a, 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 there's a couple others as well that we have used. And it really depends on, in that case, what you're looking at, whether you want the data pushed over both links together, aggregated together. And if one goes down, it, it just cuts your bandwidth in half versus failing over from one link to the other. And so there's different ways of looking at that redundant star, whether it's half of it's actually working or the whole thing is it's using both pieces of the redundant star continuously is a difference between the two and additional protocols that exist in that. And Joe brought up FlexLinks and uh, EtherChannel. Those are popular, but we're also seeing HSRP, which is the hot standby routing protocol. We're seeing, because that, that's used in a lot of uh, layer three environments or at the distribution layer, we, we're seeing that protocol used between distribution switches on a, a fairly regular basis these days. And that's mainly being driven by the IT crowd because that is a protocol they use on a regular basis. So one of the other important pieces about these different protocols is understanding what they do and how they do it and what's best. And that's where you know, I think I've plugged the Rockwell design guides many times on this. That's where Rockwell has done some work to prove out on different things like uh, SIP sync. That's one of the ones where these protocols differ in which ones support that SIP sync capability. And knowing whether you need it or not is an important piece when it comes to deciding which one you would use. Because in some cases, they may be equivalent. The, the effect may be equivalent to your plant. In other cases, there may be a strategic reason to use one versus the other. Yeah, it's a good point because in our last episode where we discussed the CPWE as a holistic kind of discussion, we, we mentioned the, the design implementation guides or the DIGs. And there is one that is specific to resiliency, and I believe it's, it's called Design in a Resilient CPWE. And inside of that, that document, they, they take all of these architectures, be it ring or redundant star and, and these various protocols, and they, they do test them and characterize their results, which leads to, a, a, I guess, the next topic perhaps is the notion of convergence time, which is documented in, in that dig. So what exactly is convergence time when we're talking in these resilient protocols? Typically, that's going to be the amount of time it takes for the network to recover. So you were, have two devices communicating, there's an interruption somewhere in the network, and they quit communicating for a moment. And how long does it take before communications are restored? And Rockwell typically does this in, their, in a lab environment with a, a lot of data being pushed on the network through data generators and concentrators. They also are testing time 
So making sure that they know exactly how long it takes and, and testing different faults and what the recovery rate is on those. There is a substantial difference in in one case, just when we talk about rep, between using a copper link versus a fiber link and using gig versus 100 meg, there is a giant difference in the recovery time there. Where using a fiber link, you can actually get into a, a very acceptable repair time for something like an MCC, where using a copper link that, that we couldn't get there still. Just that the time was too long. So I think in general, the, the DLR ring has the best convergence time out of those that were tested. And, and that's, that's a good point, Wayne. Uh, you used the word tested. Since you brought up the design guides, everything we're talking about here has been tested by Rockwell. That's why when we say on, let's say, a DLR ring, we're good for putting 50 nodes on it. And based on this criteria, we're going to heal in three milliseconds or less. That is tested and proved out. And that's why the design guides are such a good reference because everything they're talking about is a tested architecture or protocol. Good comment on DLR and its limitations. It's important to know that that there are limitations to to these architectures and the resilient architectures. I know DLR, like you mentioned, 50 nodes is kind of the published limit. It may not be a necessarily a, a hard cap, but as you exceed 50, then that convergence time you know, may not be guaranteed any longer, right? That is true. I, I've worked on networks where we've actually had more than 50 devices on a ring, specifically because of a screw-up on my end. I'm, I'm good to admit my faults that I've made. It did not affect the network, and it, the network works just fine. But I made the, the – when I, I think of 50 nodes, I was thinking of 50 devices. I wasn't thinking of such things as ETAPs being used as media converters, which does count against your node count. Just, uh, just want to share some words of wisdom that I learned the hard way, and you shouldn't have to. <laughs> so what are some other considerations for DLR rings? I, th- I think maybe one – Maybe not a misconception, but I guess traditionally DLR rings were known as device level rings. And we've always kind of discussed those or or architected those as like without having to have a switch in the mix. Right. So you could just go from a from a controller like an EN2TR card right to a flex IO drop maybe and then daisy chain around and then just kind of close the ring on the other end. But the DLR has gone through several improvements, a few phases, they've called it, where they've actually added the ability to to put stratic switches inside the ring. And then um, you're still limited to perhaps 50 nodes, but, but now you could actually tag more stuff into that switch, perhaps. Correct. And, 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 and Wayne, just throwing that out, that's, that's a proper design philosophy for what you're doing. You, you might want to do a DLR ring with switches because you're having multiple devices coming back to it. It could be a mixture of VFDs. IO devices, power monitors. If you have so many, so many devices in your access area or your zone, quite often you don't want to do that with ETAPs. If you, you can put one switch there that can handle multiple devices, that works better than using multiple ETAPs. It counts less against your tap. So that helps you on, give you some guidance on how you should design your networks. Yeah, with the uh, device level rings, we've added in that capability of using switches in the last couple of years, new revisions and the design guides to support that. And it's really given a lot of a lot more capability in the architectures and variability in the architectures that we can do. Still giving that, that quick recovery time, but we've added in the capability of 
being able to have dual default gateways, redundant is a redundant gateway capability, adding in having just a ring of switches now. It's not as the limit's lower than 50 when it comes to just switches, but there is, you can do a ring of just switches now. It allows you to get to move that device level ring further up the model and higher up in the plant. So it's not just purely sitting with a PLC and some IO and drives and stuff inside of a panel or on a, on a skid. You can actually move that device level ring up and interconnect your PLCs together. So we're talking about DLRs too. It, I guess it's, it's good to note that. Rockwell has actually provided several kind of tools to help monitor a DLR ring. There's there's a faceplate that can be loaded into a panel view plus or into a FactorTalk view SE application. There's even a standalone DLR tool as well. It could just run on your Windows computer and just kind of connect out to your industrial network and monitor that ring health. And that's that's a really good point. We're not... With DLR, we're not relying on using the simple network management protocol built into a lot of the switches for our diagnostics. Rockwell has already created the diagnostic tags and created the face plates and the logic behind. So it makes it it so you don't have to be an IT professional and still be getting diagnostics from your network by utilizing it. We really have simple, Rockwell's really simplified the network and give us the diagnostics so you don't have to be the consummate IT professional to deploy a network these days. It does bring up a very good point, though. We have a lot of people that implement device level ring and other resilient networks out in the field and then fail to implement a monitoring method to determine when something has failed. And so, you know, for instance, in a device level ring, you lose a cable someplace, everything is still talking. Every, it recovered, the system's still running. You don't know that there was a failure someplace unless you're actually monitoring that the network is now open. So you can very easily run past your single point of failure and still maintain the uptime. And then the next failure takes you down because you didn't implement a monitoring function. And that's one of the benefits that Rockwell has with the device level ring faceplate and add-on instructions and so on to be able to monitor this the health of your network so that you can repair things before you end up with multiple failures. Right. If you're working at a facility, you don't want to rely on red blinky lights to tell you whether you're having any issues or not. You, you want to be able to, to diagnose the issue a lot faster than that. So when the red blinky lights are hiding behind closed panel doors. Exactly. So uh, deploying this network and then utilizing the free tools that Rockwell's giving you actually makes it, uh, it it's, it's a great network to implement. From a, a design perspective, I think one of the things we see a lot of times in specifications that come from our customers, you'll sometimes see the requirement for dual media, right? And that's always one of those where we're kind of that discussion, you know, going between a ring, a DLR ring, which 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 we've discussed is very easy and low cost to to implement, versus the concept of having to go dual media. So I thought maybe we would discuss a little bit about maybe some some best practices or maybe some discussion around when, you know, when a ring is sufficient and when, you know, dual media is really required. Well, I I think the first thing is take a look at the process you're, you're networking to begin with. How important is it? Can you live with a possible network outage or do you have to have something constantly up? 
that's why we have algorithms like a parallel redundancy protocol. Uh, again, not a ring environment, but it, it gives you the full online ability. The problem with that type of deployment is it's expensive. Um, there's a lot to manage. You have to use a lot more switches and hardware to make it work. Yeah, the easiest way when you start looking at uptime and resiliency requirements when you're trying to figure out what to, how to lay out your network is look at the individual nodes and say, what will happen if this node goes away? If this node goes offline, what will happen? If this bank of I.O. goes offline, if this drive goes offline, if this PLC, if I lose this skid, if I lose this line, and figure out what, what your plant would do. And that gives you an idea of what type of network topology you need based off of whether or not that's going to affect you. So if you lose a particular drive and it's not a big deal, well, maybe you don't need resiliency on that drive. If you lose this skid and your entire plant's going to shut down, well, then you probably want to have some resiliency on that particular skid into the network. You lose a device inside of a skid. You know, you've got a skid that's got uh, 10 different Ethernet devices inside of it. And if you were to lose one of them and it's going to shut the skid down, or any one of them and it's going to shut the skid down, then it doesn't, you know, may not actually need resilient network there because every single one of the devices, if you lose, it's going to shut it down. So the typical way when you look at something like device level ring, there's two different levels of resiliency that you're adding there. One is media and the other is hardware. And we're not really messing with the hardware resiliency. We're only really giving you media resiliency. So unless one of the cables is going to be cut. So if you're working within a panel, let's say, you don't necessarily have a high risk of a cable being cut. So having de deploying a device level ring inside of a panel sometimes doesn't make sense because of that. You're not, your risk of having a cable cut is very, very minimal. And then, but if you lose a device, the whole thing is going to shut down. So have a, a, a real reason right there to be using something as a simple star topology in that case. One, one thing I, I've, if we go back to, since we started this series and we started talking about the Converge plant-wide Ethernet um, architecture. One thing, if you notice, we, we like to point to, uh, if you ever look at the guide, one of the first drawings or illustrations you get is a ring showing zones all the way up. Basically, it's an OSI model. And if you look at anything below layer three, one thing is you will see a combination of all these different protocols being utilized that we've talked about based on the application that we have. That's why there's no one single best protocol. It depends on what you're trying to do. And our guide addresses how to utilize where we might be using PRP in one instance, where we're using DLR in another, and we might be using flex links to the access switch to make sure we always have bandwidth going up to the top. So it, I'll point back to our design guides if you take a look at them, it will it will help you decide what's the best approach to your your zone of automation. How how do we best need to come up with a solution for it? Yeah, that's good, right? It's it's not just one magic bullet. It's it's really a combination of everything, like you said. So you so you can really have the mixed mixed topologies, like we've talked about before, and and now you can have a, a kind of a mixed kind of a, a mixed topology and mixture of different resiliency protocols to, to satisfy your, your requirements. Joe and I, I will say, work on Ethernet networks on a regular basis, and we're often deploying at least three or four different resilient protocols in that application, depending on which zone we're in. 
and what the application is. I guess we should also note that, you know, when we're talking the Rockwell automation products, we're talking the Stratix line of switches. And the managed switches do support most of these resiliency protocols, right? I know some of the Stratix, like the 5700 and 5400 will do DLR, but most of the managed switches will also handle flex links and ether channel. Correct. But it's really important. Some switches do different protocols. That, that's important to mind. Not all Stratix 5700 support device level ring. You have to be specific about that. Not all of the switches support, let's say, high-speed routing protocol, HSRP, or uh, FlexLinks. So you, you have to be cognizant of, of which switch you're using for a particular area. Now, I'll, I'll say the product profile for 5700 actually has a pretty good eye chart that shows you which protocols are supported. But before anyone picks a switch, I, I do suggest doing a little research, going in and make sure that the protocols you tend to use are actually supported by that switch. That will save you a lot of headache down the road as long as you put some thought into what, what your switches are you're using. Quite often, we'll do a, a ring, a control ring in the... Uh, in zone one and um, at the, the the connecting point from the ring to the uh, d- distribution switch will be maybe a 5400 because that supports different protocols that the 5700 does. It has a few extra tricks up its sleeve. So it gives us the ability to do... Um, this supports more like, say, port aggregation protocols where you might want to take two ports to do... Di- two different stacks on a stack switch. That's really common for what we do. Yeah, I know. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I know there's a really good knowledge base article from Rockwell's knowledge base that back on DLR, at least, that tells you all the devices that are set or that support the DLR protocol and also what devices can be ring managers too. So it's a very useful reference when you're trying to design your DLR ring. Right. And you know, the nice part is we, we, we have all the design guides, but, Obviously, um, Joe and myself being automation specialists, yourself, Wayne, if any of our customers have any questions, feel free to call your automation specialist and, and we'll do help do some of the research for you. Make sure our, our goal is to make sure you get a network that works for your application. So uh, feel free to reach out to your distributor specialist when you have these questions. Yeah, one thing that I can definitely say is we do ask additional questions beyond even some of the topics we've talked about today. Some of the other stuff that we typically want to know is is what the uh, subnet size looks like. What how big a how big of a network are we talking about? Uh, how many VLANs should we be VLANing things off into different groups? And the reason we ask that is certain protocols don't support VLANs very well. And certain, certain protocols fit in certain places much better than others. So even though they may appear to be very similar, sometimes implementing one further down in the system makes a lot more sense than using something different a little higher up. The general rule on a lot of the resiliency stuff is the higher up you get into the plant, the more devices you have talking and the more lines and stuff you bring together, the longer those recovery times typically are. And eventually you end up in the uh, almost in the IT zone. So we have to be very specific on how we architect the, the network on the lower end to have a, a very seamless on what needs to talk to what and what is an acceptable uh, lag time there for that communication loss on a failure and recovery. 
the other piece on that is add too many jumps in there. You can also add a little bit, a little bit of just general lag in the system anyways. So general latency, trying to mitigate that. Last thing I would, I would say on, on the latency side is, you know, device level ring is very good for very low latency, high speed systems. You know, so we use that a lot on the, uh, on skids and tut and things like that. And that gets us the ability to have stuff that needs to talk very quickly and repeatedly to each other doing that. But when you're talking controller to controller and you're just doing some balancing across the plant or something like that, that timing isn't necessarily, isn't normally quite that critical. So we can slow the communication down and run it through different VLANs and up through a router or something like that and add, and add a little bit more delay to it. And it's okay. So we, we do ask those questions and, and walk you through the different stuff when we're trying to architect a network and, and give you the best solution for today and tomorrow. I think that's been one of the key takeaways from all of these episodes is that uh, that's what we're here to help, right? So we welcome those calls and we definitely get them in emails too. So uh, so reach out to your local specialist. Mike and Joe, really appreciate you taking the time today to talk of resiliency with us. Well, thanks for giving us the opportunity, Wayne. Thank you. Always enjoy it. In general, we appreciate your input to this entire series. It's been eight shows and a lot of content and a lot to to cover over these last eight weeks. But uh, we appreciate your support and your information, and um, look forward to some future engagements. We'll we'll um, we'll come up with some different topics here over the next couple of weeks, and then of course I think we'll you know like we said before, industrial networking is such a huge topic, so we'll definitely be revisiting networking as we go forward. So thanks again, guys. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of TRC Talks, and thank you for listening to our industrial networking mini-series. For support, please see our website, reynoldsonline.com, and for those outside of our area, please visit rockwellautomation.com, and you can find your authorized local distributor there. Thank you again, and we'll see you in the next episode.